Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome to episode number 134 of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. I am your host, James Murphy, a.k.a. Murph, and it is an absolute pleasure to be bringing you today's episode here on an absolutely beautiful Friday morning as I'm recording, and it's going to be a beautiful Friday day by the time you guys are listening to this, and uh, it's a beautiful day, weather-wise. Uh, sports cards are doing really well right now. Baseball's opening day was yesterday. And today we have the Boston Red Sox opening their 2022 season in the Bronx against the New York Yankees. Yes, it was postponed from yesterday, but we have the game today and it is very, very exciting. So we have a bunch of Red Sox topics to get into. And I promised from last episode, episode 133 on Monday, that I would be talking about the Red Sox. And of course, I am going to deliver with that. Today's episode is going to be Red Sox heavy. Red Sox heavy. And also at the end of the episode, if we have time, I want to go into my mock draft 1.0. Yeah. So I released my NFL 2022 Mock Draft 1.0 on Wednesday, and I really want to kind of dive into that and just talk about a few interesting selections that I made and obviously cover the Patriots selection and maybe around the Patriots, you know, a few picks before to kind of help uh, just give a little food for thought on where I went with the Patriots at pick number 21. If you want to follow along, and view the full mock draft, you can absolutely do so by going over to the Instagram, at Murph's Car Town. You probably also find it on Facebook as well if you go onto the shop's Facebook page, at Murph's Car Town Sports Shop. But I don't want to jump too far ahead because, like I said, we have a ton of Red Sox topics to discuss, and I want to try to fire through them, but I also want to make sure I do my due diligence by breaking it down. But before we get into all of that, I would absolutely appreciate you if you like comment and subscribe on this youtube video if that is where you're listening if you're listening on audio only platforms i appreciate you so much for downloading listening and enjoying please reach out to me at social media via social media excuse me at merce card town i would love to engage in any and all discussions comments debates arguments or just simply you want to talk sports that is where you can do so but again i really am looking forward to today's episode so let's dive in with obviously Probably the biggest news in the offseason for the Red Sox. And that's the signing of Trevor Story. Now, the Red Sox were kind of in 
talks and rumors with a bunch of different players over the course of the offseason, especially after the lockout ended and teams were able to negotiate with free agency yet again. However, the Red Sox honed in on Trevor Story and were able to bring him in. Formerly a shortstop, he is now going to make the transition over to second base, which most of you probably know this by now. But the Red Sox and Story agree to a six-year contract through the 2027 season with a club option for 2028. This contract is worth $140 million. However, it can get all the way up to $160 million, depending on that option. From 2022 to 2023, Story will be making $20 million. 2024 and 2025, he'll be making $22.5 million. 26 to 27, he'll be making $25 million. And then that club option for 2028 is worth uh, $25 million as well. Trevor Story does have a uh, an opt-out clause after the end of the 2025 season. So we'll be getting Story for at least a guaranteed four seasons, which is very, very exciting. But like I said, formerly a shortstop, but the Red Sox are bringing him in to play second base, which... You know, on the surface, kind of looks confusing. Why would you do that when you have Alexander Bogarts? Well, the need of having a second baseman is crucially there. That's blatantly obvious. Yeah, you had Christian Arroyo play there. Yeah, you had Kike Hernandez play there. But really bringing in Trevor Story really shores up that infield. Having another shortstop playing second base is going to be absolutely crucial. And it's really going to help shore up that defense because Trevor Story is an above average defender. However, the reason why I love the Trevor Story signing so much is because it gives the Red Sox lineup another bat. Another bat in the lineup, and that's something they absolutely need. Night in and night out last year, before Kyle Schwarber took off, before Bobby Dahlback figured his game out, the Red Sox were so reliant on Rafael Devers, Alexander Bogarts, and J.D. Martinez. Sadly, that was just a fact. They were super reliant on those three guys those three guys did not perform well then the Red Sox lineup as a whole wasn't going to perform well and I remember I sat here day in and day out during the 2021 season you know the spring early summertime that the Red Sox need to step up and score runs at least what three runs I think it was the number I was looking for I mean the lineup should easily be able to produce four runs a game and especially with the rotation that you had last year with Sale not coming back until August, you really needed that pitching to step up. But most nights you didn't get the pitching to step up, so that's why you needed your lineup to excel and perform. Now, the Trevor Story signing also gives the Red Sox a little leverage with Xander Bogarts, who I'll get into it in a little bit, who rejected the Red Sox contract extension or they were far apart. I don't know exactly what the term the terminology was. But Rafael uh Rafael. Alexander Bogarts, he has a opt out at the end of this season. And I think the contract's good for another couple of seasons if he, you know, stays with the Red Sox. But the Red Sox could be like, hey, we got Trevor Story who's played second base for us this year, but you know, we know he can play shortstop, so why would we extend ourselves and pay you and we can rather just pay this guy okay that's a fair point however I mean that's kind of a dirty move by the Red Sox front office but I get it it's a business and you want to make sure that your finances are in order you want to put the best team on the field you want to please the fans you want to win games I get all of that 
And obviously, with the crop of players that the Red Sox have coming up through the pipeline, Tristan Cassis, Blaze Jordan. Obviously, you have Bobby Dahlbeck at first base, but he could move around a little bit. Then you have Marcelo Meyer coming up in a few years. Jeter Downs, Nick York. There's a clog in the infield of players right now in the Red Sox system. Devers, Bogarts, Story, Dahlbeck. Then I, again, Cassis, Blaze Jordan, Jeter Downs, Marcelo Meyer, Nick York. Like Some of those players are going to have to either change positions or they're going to have to get moved. Now, could Alexander Bogarts wanting too much money be the odd man out? Then you move Story back over to shortstop. Then you put in a Jeter Downs or a Nick York at second base. Okay, I guess that could work. But uh, I'll get into it in a little bit. But Rafael Devers wants Alexander Bogarts here in Boston. Um, if he's going to, you know, re-up his contract and, you know, sign an extension. So then if Bogarts leaves at the end of this season, you could be looking at Devers leaving at the end of next season. And now all this depth that you had is starting to thin out a little bit. Yeah, you could have Cassis play first or third, Dahlbeck play the other. And you have, like I said, Blaze Jordan as well. But Bogart's endeavors are arguably top three at their positions, respectively. And those kind of hitters don't come along all too often. I mean, Raphael Devers tore it up in the spring. Granted, spring training, but six home runs, I mean, he's hitting the lights out of the ball. And his defense has improved. Xander Bogart's, we know what we're going to get from him year in and year out. So... As it stands right now in 2022, the Red Sox lineup looks like it's in a very good spot. Kike, Devers, Bogarts, JD, Story, Dahlbeck, Verdugo. It's a really good lineup. But I think this Trevor Story signing is obviously long-term because you have him for six years. But it's also going to impact the short-term post-2022. So like 2023, 2024 kind of short term I mean I love the move for this year I absolutely love the move but again I just fear that something like this is going to push Bogarts out the door because if you got Trevor Story for 20 22.5 25 million dollars a year what's Bogarts going to sign for because I think right now he's at 20 million dollars but he is worth more obviously so it's going to be very interesting to see how that dynamic works out over the course of the season into the offseason. But right now, let's just focus on 2022 and having him play second base, which I believe is going to be an absolute bonus for the Red Sox. Anything that's ever happened to Bogarts, you can slide Story over. You know, if J.D. Martinez goes down in the lineup, you can push him up because today he's batting six, and I'll get into that in, later in the episode. But having Trevor Story in your lineup just brings it more depth, and it allows Devers to go on a 10-game, you know, cold streak. It allows Bogarts to, you know, go 0 for 12 in a couple of games. You know, it just gives you a lineup more depth, and it allows it to be deeper and more feared all the way from 1 to 6 instead of, okay, let's just get through Bogarts, let's just get through Devers and JD, and the rest of the lineup's okay. So Trevor Story adds just multiple layers than just a, a, a bringing in another player. So I kind of alluded to it, but what does the lineup look like entering the 2022 season? Now, I like the lineup here on opening day. 
but I'm not a fan of it long term, and I can kind of understand why that we have this lineup today. So Red Sox playing against the Yankees at Yankee Stadium to open up the 2022 season, like I've already alluded to. First pitch is at 105. We have Nathan Eovaldi and Garrett Cole on the mounds, respectively. Red Sox opening day lineup looks like this. You have Kike Hernandez in center field. Rafael Devers at third base. Alexander Bogarts at shortstop. J.D. Martinez at the designated hitter position. One through four, pretty much expected. Then you have Alex Verdugo in left field. Trevor Story at second base. Bobby Dahlbeck at first base. Jackie Bradley Jr. in right field. And Christian Vasquez behind the plate. Now, Trevor Story pat, uh, batting sixth is a little shocking to me. But when I look at the rest of the lineup, I kind of understand it. Because... The only other plausible option was to flip Verdugo and Story, but that would give the Red Sox Bogarts, Martinez, and Story, which are three right-handed hitters all in a row. And I know Alex Cora likes to play matchups, and baseball has become a very matchup-orientated game, especially with the bullpen later in the innings. So putting Verdugo in the five spot to kind of break up those right-handed hitters makes all the sense in the world. That's why Kyle Schwarber was such a huge acquisition last year because it gave you another left-handed bat in the lineup. And that is something the Red Sox have always struggled with, probably since Ortiz retired, was having a reliable left-handed bat that you know can bring you power and some average that you can rely on. Obviously, Devers has kind of taken that mantle, but him at the second spot in the lineup, it really leaves your three through six or seven kind of wide open for vulnerability. Another reason why I kind of understand Story batting sixth is maybe he's not fully ready yet. He did join the Red Sox later into spring training. He didn't play his first spring training game till later in the spring campaign. So could he not be 100%? Maybe. Maybe he's only 90, 93% ready. So having him a little lower in the lineup just kind of lets him ease in a little bit easier. And then kind of once the season meticulates and forms a little bit more, you'll be able to see him probably move up to the five spot where I think he should be. Arguably fourth. Just depends on how J.D. Martinez performs this year. But after talking about the lineup, let's talk about the roster as a whole. The opening day roster in its entirety. So I'm just going to rattle it off. The whole thing. Pitchers, catchers, infields, outfielders. And I'm going to dive into it a little bit. And... I hope I'm not talking too fast or you know giving you too much information all at once. Like I mentioned, there's a lot of things that we need to talk about, and I just want to make sure I get it all off my chest and all into your ears for opening day. So I do apologize. Obviously, if you're listening to this on YouTube, you can slow it down to like 0.75 speed, or if I'm speaking too slowly, you can turn it up, you know, 1.25 or 1.5. Audio-only platforms, I don't know if you can do that. I don't think so. That's something I haven't really tested all too much or experimented, but if that's an option, definitely let me know, whether it's in the comments on YouTube or reaching out to me in social media. I'm kind of interested. Anyways, here are your 15 pitchers for the Major League roster to open the 2022 season. Matt Barnes, Ryan Brazier, Cutter Crawford, Austin Davis, Jake Dykeman, Nathan Evaldi, Rich Hill, Tanner Houck, Nick Pavetta, Hansel Robles, Hiro Kazu Sawamura, Matt Stram, Phillips Valdez, Michael Walker, and Garrett Whitlock. Your catchers, you have Kevin Plowecki and Christian Vasquez. Your infielders, Jonathan Arauz, 
Alexander Bogarts, Bobby Dahlbeck, Raphael Devers, Travis Shaw, and Trevor Story. Your outfielders, Jackie Bradley Jr., J.D. Martinez, and Alex Verdugo. Your utility men, Christian Arroyo and Kike Hernandez. And to start the season, the Red Sox have James Paxton, Chris Hill, and Josh Taylor all injured. I think this I think the hitting aspect of this team is really solid. I know I've mentioned it before, whether it was at the shop or previously. Actually, I probably haven't mentioned it previously on the podcast. Towards the end of season one, I probably talked about it, and you know, I want Jaron Duran on this roster. I really, really do. I Listen, I like Jackie Bradley Jr. for what he can bring to the table defensively. Has he lost a step? Maybe. Still has a good arm. But defensively, he's definitely taken a step back from what he was in 2017, 2018. So it's good to have him. But I'd prefer him to be a kind of a defensive substitution later in games than our starting right fielder. I just really think Jaron Duran, if you put him in right field and just have him bat last, like what you did with Bobby Dahlbeck last year, just ride it out and just let the young kid develop. After three months, if you don't, or after a month and you don't like what you see, just bring him back down. I just really think it will help the Red Sox long-term because who's the long-term outfielder for the Red Sox, Jaron Duran or Jackie Bradley Jr.? Now, could Jaron Duran not really be that ready for the 2022 season? Possibly. I wouldn't doubt it. But that's just something, you know, Red Sox don't have a lot of speed coming off the bench except Arawoos. Uh I don't know. I th- the only gripe that I have, that's the only gripe that I have with the Red Sox and their opening day positional players. I think Christian Arroyo, I'm not a big fan of, but he's growing on me. He's learning right field, learning the outfield a little bit, so he's trying to be more versatile. Kike Hernandez, obviously a staple now in center field, it appears, but can play just about everywhere. Good to see Travis Shaw back on the team and made the 2022 opening day roster because, again, a left-handed bat that the Red Sox need off the bench or even in the lineup, and that's something that they don't have. I mean, Ploiecki, Vasquez, Bogarts, Dahlbeck, Trevor Story, J.D. Martinez, Christian Arroyo, Kike Hernandez, they're all right-handed hitters. So having Travis Shaw in that lineup or at least coming off the bench, being a left-handed bat, that is significantly going to help. All right, enough with the positional players. Let's talk about pitching. Let's talk about this rotation and the bullpen. Let me read off the names of pitchers yet again. Matt Barnes, Ryan Brazier, Cutter Crawford, Austin Davis, Jake Dykeman, Nathan Eovaldi, Rich Hill, Tanner Houck, Nick Pavetta, Hansel Robles, Hirokazu Sawamura, Matt Stram, Phillips Valdez, Michael Walker, and Garrett Whitlock. The Red Sox are definitely missing pieces in this pitching staff, I'll tell you that. You know, yes, yes, you have James Paxton, Chris Sale, and Josh Taylor all injured. And once they're all healthy, they will absolutely be vital pieces to both the rotation and the bullpen, respectively. Matt Barnes, Ryan Brazier, Jake Dykeman, I'm trying to go through the bullpen, Hansel Robles, and Garrett Whitlock were probably shoe-ins for the bullpen. But then you have Phillips Valdez, who had a very nice spring. I think he deserves you know, to be on this roster. Matt Stram, who's pitched, I believe, oh, I don't have the stats, but I believe he pitched pretty well. Sawamura, I'm not a fan of. I, I really don't think the Reds, he has a use here on the Red Sox. He just didn't look good this spring and obviously towards the end of last year. 
But my question is, with Paxton and Sale not in the rotation to start the season, you have Evaldi opening up, you have Nick Pavetta, Tanner Houck now in the rotation due to the injuries. Are we going to go with Michael Walker and Cutter Crawford as our other starters? Are we going to go with Michael Walker, Rich Hill? Are we going to put Garrett Whitlock in the rotation? There's just so many question marks towards the back end of the rotation and obviously the back end of the bullpen too. I mean, Alex Cora didn't announce a closer for this Red Sox team. Matt Barnes wanted the closing position last year, got it. He looked good first half, and then after the All-Star break, he just wasn't the same. Garrett Whitlock is so good, yet he's so versatile that it's hard to leave him as just the ninth inning guy. I mean, if you're in the middle of the sixth inning and you got to bridge the gap, he's such a good weapon to use for a couple of innings. Like, Could he still be the closer, though, and pitch the eighth and ninth inning? Sure. I mean, saves are up to three innings. I mean, you could have a, a pitcher go seven, eight, nine, and that's still a save. I just don't, I don't want Whitlock in the rotation, period. So it's good to see that he's actually in the bullpen. I think that's where he belongs. And he is our best pitcher in our bullpen, and usually your best pitcher is your closer. But however, that versatility, though, is just something you can't just relegate to just the ninth inning. Hence why I kind of think, you know, him being the closer and pitching the eighth and the ninth inning wouldn't be that terrible of an idea, especially to try it out early in the season, give it a couple weeks, see if it actually works and sticks. And if it does, then, hey, maybe you're able to kind of bridge that bullpen closer gap with Whitlock pitching two innings instead of the traditional ninth inning for a closer. Because if you have Cutter Crawford in the rotation, then Rich Hill or Michael Walker is going to have to go to the bullpen. Probably Rich Hill to give you another lefty. However, I think Cutter Crawford's probably going to serve more as a Tanner Houck role this year, at least to start. And that's, hey, I'm coming in the fifth inning. I got to get us to the seventh inning. I can do that. Or, hey, it's the sixth inning. Let's get to the ninth inning. I can do that. And pitch him you know, a couple times a week instead of like your traditional bullpen kind of a role. It's just there's way too many questions that I don't like with this pitching staff, bullpen and rotation alike, that I don't want. You know, if Sale and Paxton were in the rotation, okay, now you got Chris Sale, Nathan Ivaldi, you have Nick Pavetta, James Paxton, and then your fifth uh, starter can be Hulk. It can be Rich Hill. Could be Michael Walker. Maybe you need a spot start by Cutter Crawford. But those are four guys I just rattled off for one spot in the rotation. Without Paxton and Sale, again, you have Eovaldi, Tanner Houck, Nick Pavetta as your starters. And then you have a combination of Rich Hill, Walker, and Cutter Crawford as your four and your five. It just I don't think the Red Sox pitching staff as a whole is built for a long hauling season. I just don't see it especially with the departure of Eduardo Rodriguez, who was very reliable over the course of his career, being able to give you 28, 29, 30, 31, 32 starts a season. That reliability is now gone. And you can't... I mean, Nathan Ivaldi, who's had some injury issues, but he's been fairly consistent as of late. So I'd like to be able to count on him, but hey, you never know. Nick Pavetta, in his short time here in Boston, has been very reliable being on the mound every five days. 
again, we don't really know the true role of Tanner Houck. I mean, I would like him in the starting rotation, period. But hey, he might jump to the bullpen. Who knows? Wait, and, I, and I'm not confident and I'm not sold that Michael Walker and Rich Hill are going to solve the back end of our rotation issues. I'm just not sold. Rich Hill's 42 years old, who's still pitching fairly well, and Michael Walker, who's struggled the past couple of seasons. I just don't like it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just don't like it. So will the pitching staff be able to hold up until Salem Paxton comes back? Ultimately, my answer is going to be no. I just I don't think so. Too many hitters hit the ball well. Um, a lot of hitters in this league swing for the fences. I just I'm not. I like Nathan Eovaldi and I not, and I like Nick Pavetta. I want to like Tanner Hulk, but I'm not sold yet. I want him on the big league team regardless, but I'm not sold on him yet to be a reliable starter every five days. It'll be very interesting for this Red Sox team over the course of the first couple weeks in a month to see what this rotation and what the bullpen is able to give you day in and day out. All right. I did this last year, and I, I was absolutely right. Over, under, win total for the Red Sox. The over, under right now for the Boston Red Sox, I believe, is 85 and a half wins. To obviously, to start the season. 85 and a half wins. Last year, it was 81.2. No, 81.2. 81.5. wins. I hammered the over on that one. Because the Red Sox had to win more than 81 games. Oh my God, they absolutely had to. Now, with the AL East being very competitive, that it is with the Yankees, who you're playing today, the Tampa Bay Rays, who you're going to be playing soon, the Blue Jays, who you're going to be playing soon, yourself. And not that the Orioles will be very competitive, but they're young and they're going to be good with all that talent that they have coming up through their respective pipeline. So the AL East is going to be pretty good this year. Do I think they'll win? The Red Sox will win more than 85.5 games. If they don't, it's a disappointment compared to last year because I think they have to. Even with the expanded playoffs in baseball, I would think that all your division winners would get 90 wins. I would think a few of your wildcard teams will get 90 wins as well. And maybe a team, maybe that third wildcard with 88, 89 wins, maybe even 90 wins themselves. So I'm going to hammer the over here on 85 and a half. My projected for them is probably somewhere between 91 and 94 wins. And that's that's where I can see them being at because if the Red Sox don't make the playoffs this year, that's an absolute disappointment. Absolute disappointment. You won the World Series in 2018. Okay. You missed the playoffs in 2019 and in 2020. 2020 was kind of a the it was a reset, it was a wash year. Okay. You looked really good the first half of 21, then you struggled, then you turned it on, you made it all the way to the American League Championship Series where you were up on the Astros two games to one, and then you lost. So the Red Sox, I'd probably say their bar considering this lineup that they have that we already talked about is the divisional round. I don't care about the you no know, playing games or wild cards or however they have it friggin' set up this year. I, I don't know. Whatever, however it is, divisional round. I mean, obviously we're he, we're Boston fans, we're Red Sox fans, we want championships. 
I just don't think that the bullpen and the rotation can bring us to that. Yes, Sale is coming back. What is he going to look like? James Paxton will be coming back. What is he going to look like? We've never seen him in a Red Sox uniform before. So, I think the Red Sox will go over 85 and a half wins. Like I said, I see them between 91 and 94 games. Will that win you the division? I don't know. I don't see the Tampa Bay Rays winning 100 games again. But hey, it's baseball. It's a long season. You don't know. That's one of the glories about baseball. Is a team could you know not look like a playoff team. And next thing you know, they are a playoff team. I think the Red Sox weren't a playoff team to start the 2021 season. Obviously with hopes and expectations that they would. But then they go make the playoffs. And they make it to the American League Championship Series. Again, the lineup should be able to carry you to a 91-94 win season. I just don't think that rotation can, especially with all the holes in it that you have now. And that bullpen with all the uncertainties that you have once that starter does come out. What do you guys think? Do you think the Red Sox are going to win more than 85.5 wins? Do you think they'll win less? Do you think they'll win more? Do you think that the Red Sox will make the playoffs this season, even with the expanded playoffs? Whether there was expansion or no expansion in the playoffs, they freaking had to make the playoffs. Am I right? They absolutely had to make the playoffs. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So, I definitely want to see what this rotation is going to look like come summertime. I don't want the Red Sox to overextend themselves for a starter, uh, you know, sell the uh, you know, sell the future, mortgage the future for a starter. I don't want that to happen. I do feel like that the Red Sox can piece it together early in the season because a lot of teams are going to be figuring it out themselves, whether it's rotation, bullpen, or lineup issues. First month and a half, two months is always kind of weird, you know. So. I think I said it last year, the first 40 to 60 games, once we kind of get to that area is where we can kind of start seeing what teams are going to look like. We can kind of differentiate the good teams from the bad teams or the teams that started off hot will sizzle out. Teams that started off cold will heat up. Yeah, you can have a team like the Atlanta Braves, you know, be 41 and 41 and then go on and win the World Series. Or you can have a team like the Nationals where they're like 19 and 37 and then go on to win the World Series. Absolutely possible. However, I think that 40 to 60 game mark, you know, month or two into the season, roughly two, is a really good indicator to kind of see where all the dust will settle across Major League Baseball. But as of right now, I do have them over 85 and a half wins. I do have them making the playoffs. Division, I don't know. I don't know about the division. I don't know if I'm ready to go there yet. If I had a pick right now and today, I'm going to say no. Just because that bull, uh, the bullpen and the starting rotation, I don't trust it. I don't like it right now. But let's get into a little bit more nitty-gritty topic of conversation, and that's Raphael Devers and Alexander Bogarts. Raphael Devers has this year and next year left of arbitration. Alexander Bogarts' contract, uh, he has an opt-out clause at the end of this season, which I've already alluded to. I don't know the numbers, but Raphael Devers rejects the Red Sox extension offer 
and Xander Bogarts and the Red Sox are apparently far apart on contract extension negotiations. What does this mean? Well, there was a report that said that Rafael Devers won't sign an extension unless Xander Bogarts is part of the Red Sox moving forward and it, that he's on the team. Fair enough. Totally understand that. So that kind of ties the Red Sox that, hey, you're not going to get one unless you get them both. So I've already mentioned it. You have Dahlbeck, you have Tristan Cassis, you have Blaze Jordan coming up the pipeline to play third base. You have Trevor Story who can bounce back over to shortstop. You have Jeter Downs, who was a shortstop in the Dodgers system before you got him. Now you're trying to you know, teach him to be a second baseman-ish. You have Nick York, who can play second base. Again, moving story over to short. You have Marcelo Meyer, who he drafted fourth overall in the June draft last year. So there's a lot of options if you wanted to move past Devers and Bogarts at the end of the 2021 season. Do I think they should? Absolutely not. I don't think in any way, shape, or form that they should. I really don't. When it was time for the Red Sox to trade either Andrew Benintendi or Mookie Betts, I always said, just trade one. Trade one, extend the other. Okay? I wanted to keep Mookie Betts, but I didn't want to pay him $35, $40 million a year, something like that. And Benintendi was kind of trending down. Obviously, the better player was Mookie Betts, so you want to keep him and you trade Benintendi. Red Sox virtually you know, ended up trading Mookie Betts first, as we all know. We got Verdugo, Jeter Downs, and Connor Wong back in return. Pretty good return, I think. I mean, at the moment, I did not like it at all. I really didn't, but Verdugo has played very well. Connor Wong looks very promising. You know, We should probably see a lot of him this year, and Jeter Downs has been struggling. But the Dodgers were acquiring a player that had one year left of arbitration and wasn't a guarantee to stay past that season. But okay, you traded Mookie Betts and you lost a lot of the fan base. You really did. Okay, okay, the season goes on. You have Benintendi. And, and as the fan base kind of starts to kind of come around, you trade away Andrew Benintendi, which, okay, I didn't agree with. A lot of people really liked Andrew Benintendi. He was a really good player, great defender. But I get it. From a business perspective, I get it. But then you really, really lose the fan base. You missed the playoffs in 2019. You clearly missed the playoffs in 2020. Here comes 2021. Red Sox fans, you know, are question marks of the season based off of the couple previous seasons. J.D. Martinez is going to rebound. When is Sale going to get up back on the mound? What is the rotation going to look like? Can, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Then the Red Sox get hot. Like, okay, all right, you know, there we go. We got a, we got a season maybe. Then they cool off, and it's like, ugh, they're falling apart again. But then they go on an absolute tear through August, September, and into October, getting all the way to the Game 6 of the American League Championship Series, where they're up two games to one on the Houston Astros. I feel like I'm beating a, a dead horse here. But throughout that run from August to October, the Red Sox fan base was so into it they were so thrilled enjoyed and excited for red sox baseball day in and day out they were breathing red sox baseball something we haven't seen since the 2018 run and it felt good to be a red sox fan it felt good to be a part of something 
where the Red Sox were working to get back to the promised land, something they were only a couple years removed of. And it almost seemed like the Mookie Betts and the Andrew Benintendi trades were a thing of the past that they weren't even thinking about them anymore. It didn't matter if we had those guys on our team anymore. And if you do the same thing again, if you trade or you're not able to bring back both Devers and Bogarts, your fan base is going to really become disconnected from this team. They really are. They really are. They grew to love Mookie Betts, then you pluck them out. They grew to love Andrew Benintendi, and then you pluck them out. We've seen Alexander Bogarts all the way since 2013. He's the face. Of the, uh, I guess Devers is probably more the face, but Bogarts is the leader of the Red Sox. He is your vocal captain. He leads by example and arguably probably the face of the team as well alongside with Devers. You can't just pluck him out too. You can't. People like Bogarts way too much. I mean, shit, I got my dog named after Alexander Bogarts. Like, come on. And then the same thing with Devers. I mean, people really love Devers. He's such a likable guy. He produces so well, and he's probably going to be your DH in the near future. If you don't bring one, you're not going to get the other. If you don't bring one back, you're not going to get the other back. And right now, Bogart's more than likely going to opt out of his contract. And I think it was, there was a report saying that he's not going to sign an extension after opening day. So hopefully, maybe come the middle of the year, we might be able to kind of revisit this and kind of see what Devers, uh, not Devers, Bogart's production looks like at that point. But there's still a lot of uncertainty between both Devers and Bogart's for the Red Sox after the 2022 season. But I do want to jump into the NFL draft discussion and chatter real quick because there is a good amount of stuff to talk about here. And I'm not going to dive into every single pick of it because that's going to take a whole episode in and of itself. I just want to talk about the top five. Then I just want to talk about a few other notable picks here in the draft. And this is only 1.0, my mock draft 1.0. 2.0 should be coming out uh, Wednesday or Thursday, I believe, next week. Uh, stay tuned for that. Obviously, I will discuss that and break that down as well. But let's just discuss uh, what I have here. So first pick, first overall, I have the Jaguars taken. Icky Ikonwu, the offensive tackle from North Carolina State. Number two, I have the Detroit Lions taken Aiden Hutchinson, defensive end from Michigan. I have the Texans at three taken Kyle Hamilton, the very good versatile safety from Notre Dame. And then a questionable pick here that I probably see being moved is the Jets taking Sauce Gardner at four, the cornerback from Cincinnati. I'm... I know a lot of people in the league are high on him, and the Jets might kind of splurge and take that pick, uh, take that player at that pick, even though they shouldn't. But they do need a cornerback. He is the best cornerback uh, exiting college football right now that is in the draft pool. But at four, though, I mean, Denzel Ward at four, I think was the last cornerback to go in the top five. I don't know if he's a questionable pick at four, but he's turned out to be one of the best cornerbacks in the league top 10 top 8 cornerback in this league could it be worth it possibly but I feel like there's other needs that would have bigger impact whether it's a an edge rusher or whether it's a, uh, a D lineman there at 4 but you know taking a cornerback a, a big team need at 4 definitely makes a lot of sense because they also need a wide receiver and I actually have them taking Drake London at 10 
but I don't think a wide receiver should go in the top five. So, and the last pick of the top five is the New York Giants taking Evan Neal, the offensive tackle from Alabama. For a long time in early stages of my mock draft, I have Evan Neal going to Jacksonville at number one, and then Ikan will go into the Giants at five. I switched them because I've noticed that Evan Neal is kind of dropping a little bit and Ikanwu has gone up in a lot of mocks. And I know a lot of other mock drafts that are out there have Hutchinson going to the Jaguars and Ikanwu going to maybe the Texans or even the Giants at 5. So definitely stay tuned for 2.0 because I definitely foresee a lot of adjustments being made between 1.0 and 2.0. But let's just stay focused here on 1.0. So that's the top 5. Ikanwu to the Jags. Hutchinson to the Lions, Kyle Hamilton to the Texans, Sauce Gardner to the Jets at four, and Evan Neal to the Giants at five. Now, I'll probably talk about five other picks or so here in the first round, and ironically, the next one I want to talk about is the Carolina Panthers. I said that so weird, didn't I? I was like, Carolina. Carolina Panthers at six. I have them taking Malik Willis, the quarterback from Liberty, probably the most highly I don't want to say highly touted quarterback prospect. I'm high on him. I think he's the most complete. I know a lot of people probably have Kenny Pickett over him. People are saying Desmond Ritter is the most NFL-ready quarterback, which I agree with. He's like the Mac Jones of this year's draft. I don't think a quarterback should be taken before the teens. I don't. So 1 through 12, I don't think a quarterback should be taken. Ironically, I don't like any of these quarterbacks in the first round, to be honest. But Carolina Panthers... They need a quarterback. They're saying they're a quarterback away from being you know, a competitor in the NFC South, which may be true. And that's why I had them jumping the gun and taking Malik Willis here at six. Now, if I was the Panthers, I would see that, okay, the Giants probably not drafting a quarterback at seven. The Falcons could at eight. They just signed Marcus Mariota, but they also have other needs such as wide receiver maybe that you know I have them taking one at eight. You have the Seahawks who could need a quarterback at nine. The Commanders at eleven maybe, but like you know now we're starting to like you know really stretch it. So could you see the Panthers trading back from six to maybe like a 10, 11, or a 12, getting another first round pick and some other assets for this year's maybe next year's draft, and then taking a quarterback at 10, 11, 12, wherever they move back to? I think that's the more strategic and the smarter avenue for these Panthers to travel down. Because again, I don't think a quarterback should be taken in the top 12 picks. But Panthers' blaring need is clearly a quarterback. And I, I see them taking their biggest need at six, and that's a quarterback. Because if they do trade back, they could you know find themselves losing out on Malik Willis or Kenny Pickett to the Atlanta Falcons or the Seattle Seahawks. Maybe even the Washington Commanders kind of jump up and take a quarterback for the future because maybe Carson Wentz won't be their guy long term. And there's going to be a great pool of quarterbacks coming out in next year's draft, which a team like the Falcons or the Seahawks or even the Commanders could be waiting for. So there's a lot of question marks revolving around the Panthers here at six. And I really think it bears a lot of interesting discussion. Do you stay pat at six? Just take the quarterback and be done with it? Do you take the chance? trade back, bring in some more assets to either either move around the board in day one, two, or three, get another first-round pick for next year, but you're going to risk the Falcons, Seahawks, or even the Commanders taking your guy 
at 8, 9, or 11. If you like both Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett, and you can live with either one of them, then maybe trading back is not a bad idea because I don't see Kenny Pickett and Malik Willis going in the top 12. I just don't see it happening. Again, I don't think a quarterback should be taken in the top 12. I don't think a quarterback should be taken in the first round. That's just me, honestly. So with the big trade between the Eagles and the Saints, a lot of maneuvering has happened here, the lid to uh, mid to late teens. And it actually really messed up my mock draft originally because I did have it all done. And then that trade gets announced at the beginning of the week, whenever it was. So I don't want to talk about the picks, but the middle of the draft is controlled by the Eagles and the Saints. If any team wants to move up, they have to go through the Eagles or the Saints, especially if you're like a, a Green Bay or a Kansas City who both have two first-round picks. They could package those up to move up ahead of the Patriots or ahead of the Packers if you're the Chiefs or ahead of the Steelers. So the Eagles have 15, the Saints have 16, Eagles have 18, Saints have 19, and the Chargers are in the middle at 17. And I think New Orleans Saints moved up to 16 to be able to draft Trevor Penning, the offensive tackle from Northern Iowa, because the Chargers have a blaring need on the offensive line, specifically a tackle, at um, themselves to protect Justin Herbert. And the New Orleans Saints trading up to 16, I believe they'll draft Trevor Penning to protect their quarterback of the future. This year it will be Jameis Winston. Maybe it will be Ian Book at some point this year if he gets another chance at it. Maybe the Saints will look for their future quarterback in next year's draft. Maybe they'll take those two draft picks that they have and try to trade up even further in the draft. Maybe they'll try to package those two up and trade up at six with the Carolina Panthers. Or maybe they'll try to trade for one of those Jets picks at 10. I don't think they'll be able to trade all the way up to four, but maybe packaging up 16 and 19 will get you to 10. Or maybe it will get the Giants to move down from 7 and it will get you there. And even if the Saints did trade up for Trevor Penning like I have predicted in my mock draft at 16, I still have the Chargers taking uh, Bernard Raymond, the offensive tackle from Central Michigan, at 17 either way. I do at the moment feel like the Chargers are taking a offensive tackle one way or the other regardless of what happens in front of them. I have Tyler Lindbaum at 14, I got Trevor Penning at 16, and I have Bernard Raymond at 17. So I think the Chargers will be going offensive lineman at that spot no matter what. They don't need a wide receiver, they don't need a quarterback, they don't need a running back. Tight end they're okay at, I don't think a tight end should go in the first round, I don't have one going in the first round. Defense, sure, I mean could they go Nicobe Dean, sure, could they go Devin Lloyd, absolutely. But I think protecting Justin Herbert is a bigger need right now, especially where you do have the uh, the Raiders having Chandler Jones and Max Crosby who will be coming after your quarterback two games every year. Interesting pick here for the Patriots. I'm going to talk about the New England Patriots here at 21. I do have them taking Jamison Williams, the wide receiver out of Alabama, here at 21. I think that's the logical pick for them. I know that they probably should go defense here at that spot but when you can get a top 10 player at 21 you take him I just think so you still have a need at wide receiver even after Devontae Parker trade you still have a need at wide receiver 
And Jamison Williams tore his ACL in the championship game, but there are rumors that he could come back earlier than expected, and I think he was probably projected to come around November. But there's rumors that he could come around October, so only missing four to six games and getting a top 10 player, you have to take that because you have Devontae Parker. Yes, you have Kendrick Bourne. Yes, you have Jacoby Myers. Yes. Those are three good wide receivers you have right now in your system. Okay? Jacoby Myers isn't a guarantee to be here on the team next year. Nikhil Harry isn't a guarantee to be on the team this year. Nelson Aguilar is probably going to get released at the end of this year before the end, uh, the start of next year based off of money and poor performance. Would I be surprised if the Patriots cut him uh, this year? No, but it's going to be a lot of dead money that they have to swallow. So as much as you want to get an impact player here at 21, getting Jamison Williams for the end of this year and the future is a very good idea. And I think that is something that the Patriots would be foolish to not think about or consider because next year you could have Devontae Parker, a fully healthy Jamison Williams, then you could have Kendrick Bourne, Jonu Smith, hopefully he can kind of turn around, Hunter Henry, possibly James White, maybe Jacoby Myers if you're able to extend him. So that you will have a really good wide receiver core come next year, only if you're able to get Jamison Williams here at 21. And if they pass on Jamison Williams, then I could see them taking a Jermaine Johnson if he's there, the edge rusher. I could see them taking a Devin Lloyd or a N'Kobe Dean if they're there at 21. And if they do pass on a wide receiver at 21, then in the second round, I would love to see them draft John Mechie, another Alabama wide receiver. But just reuniting Mac Jones with some of his Alabama weapons and friends, I think is probably the notion that the NFL will be going with moving forward. Linking Tua with Jalen Waddell, linking Justin, I'm not uh, Joe Burrow with Jamar Chase, linking Trevor Lawrence with Travis Etienne. I think this is kind of what the NFL may be gearing to is bringing in a favorite weapon of their franchise quarterback from college. In the last two teams that I want to talk about, I don't want to talk about specific picks or players here, but I want to talk about the Green Bay Packers at 22 and 28, and then also the Chiefs at 29 and 30. These two teams are both playoff caliber teams with very good to great quarterbacks, if I'm underestimating Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes. Teams that have playoff and Super Bowl aspirations for 2022 and obviously beyond. But both of these teams have first-round picks, two first-round picks here at the back end of the first round. Could we see these teams package these picks up to move up in the draft? I've already kind of alluded to it a little bit, but it's definitely something that we could see. Now, I think the Packers probably won't because I think they'll use those two picks to help fill out their team since they, you know, they did release a lot of guys and, you know, they have a lot of transition and rollover. So... The Packers, I mean, I guess I'll just kind of mention it. I have them taking Devin Lloyd, the inside linebacker from Utah, at 22. And then I have them taking Traylon Burks, the wide receiver out of Arkansas, at 28. Could we see the Packers stay pat and just draft those two first-round picks? Absolutely. Could we see them trade up and try to get into the teens? Sure. But what is that going to do for them? What are they going to get out of that besides, obviously, you know, a higher-rated pick? I just, I think it would be foolish if they did it because they have a lot more needs 
then say the Kansas City Chiefs, who again have 29 and 30. But I think if the Chiefs could package those two up and maybe get ahead of a team like the Patriots, I hate to say it, or maybe even, you know, the Saints have two picks there in the middle of the first round. You know, the Chiefs could package up 29 and 30, get up to 19 to draft maybe a wide receiver or a linebacker or or someone ahead of the Steelers, the Patriots, the, the Packers. And that'll allow the Saints to get two more picks in the first round and just really use that to help fill up their team because they have a lot of turnover and a lot of transition themselves. So there's a lot of maneuver that we could see here in the first round, especially from these teams with two first-round picks, the Jets, the Giants, the Eagles, the Saints, the Packers, and the Chiefs all have multiple first-round picks in the first round. Could we see them use them to maneuver up and down that first round? Absolutely. And that is one of the glorious things that I love about the NFL draft is you're able to trade these picks and maneuver the board. Obviously, you can do this in hockey and in basketball, but you can't do it in baseball. But I really do love a lot of movement in football because it's just you draft the player and they're going to be on your team for at least four years and you have that first round fifth option fifth year option for first round players now in basketball it's a little bit more uh excessive because you know you could draft a player and then just trade them and i feel like that happens more often than oh you want the fourth overall pick all right let's make a trade real quick and you you can just take them and you can just make the selection at four where it's like all right i'll select the player you want but you got to give me that in return so i feel like that's where it differs but here in football, once you take the player, it's yours. And again, there's so many question marks for so many teams. Do the Jaguars protect Trevor Lawrence more? Or do they try to go for an impact player like Aiden Hutchinson or a Kyle Hamilton? Will the Carolina Panthers jump early on a quarterback at six? Or will they trade down to try to maybe get more assets and take you know, the player that they want in a more reasonable spot? What are the Jets going to do with 4-10? and 10? What are the Giants going to do with 5-7? and seven? Again, the Eagles, Packers, uh, Saints, and Chiefs all have multiple first-round picks. What are they going to do? And then, obviously, here locally, what will the Patriots do at 21? Will they take Jamison Williams or a wide receiver in general? Will they take a defensive player, maybe a linebacker or an edge rusher? Or what we've seen from Bill Belichick quite often is move down in the draft. Maybe go from 21 and maybe try to get uh, two of the, uh, those two Kansas City first-round picks. That wouldn't be a bad idea. And, you know, if I'm being honest, I, I wouldn't like it. But from a team perspective and a strategic perspective for the team's future, that's actually kind of a smart idea if I'm being honest. But those are all of my mock draft 1.0 Thoughts, opinions, comments, and everything for the 2022 NFL Draft that we have in just about one, two, three, three weeks. Had to do the math in my head. Three weeks we have the NFL Draft. And if you want to check out my entire 2022 NFL Mock Draft 1.0, you can go over to Instagram or Facebook at Murph's Cartown and you can check it out for yourself. I would absolutely love to make a video about this on YouTube. And if that's something you guys would like to see as well, definitely let me know in the comments or reach out to me via social media at Murph's Card Town. But that is going to wrap it up for this. Vi- uh, I almost said this video. 
I'm so used to making YouTube videos and I'm still trying to get back into the swing of things for the podcast. But that is going to do it for this episode of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. Thank you so much for joining me for episode number 134. Thank you so much for downloading, listening, and enjoying on all audio-only platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Stitcher, you name it. That is where you can find Murph's Boston Sports Talk. But if you're listening to this on YouTube, thank you so much for clicking on this video, liking the video, commenting, and please consider hitting that giant red subscribe button as I would greatly appreciate the love and support as I'm on my way to 250 subscribers. But again, that is going to do it. Have a fantastic weekend. Enjoy the beautiful spring weather, and I will catch you for episode number 135 on Monday. But between now and then, you guys know that I love you, and I will always, always see you. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.